Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, I have two guests today, uh, Deborah and Miriam Exel. Uh, they're daughters of uh, Amir Exel. And he, was, uh, he seemed to be a, a polymath writing about um, topics such as the, you know, the origin of the number zero, when did it first appear in the uh, world's history, which appears to be Cambodia. Um, many mathematical and science topics. And uh, he's just a fascinating person. I've been going through his books and, and learning about him. So I wanted to speak to them about uh, you know, what they knew of his activities and his interests and maybe things that didn't come out in his books. So Deborah and Miriam, thank you for coming. Thank, thank you. you so much for having us. So I just want to make one little tiny correction on your beautiful introduction. Um, sure. You're actually speaking to Miriam, who is uh, Amir's daughter. I uh, was his wife. <laughs> Oh, I apologize. Okay, very good. Very good. You sound very young. Okay. So, <laughs> well, so, what was it? Uh, what was unique and different about Amir? It seems like he was just amazingly curious about a very wide range of topics. Yes, I think Amir wrote. Oh my goodness, twenty twenty six books on um, absolutely everything. His his background was uh, was in mathematics, uh, and he had a he had a passion for making people. Uh, uh, love mathematics as much as he loved it. So some of his books were on um, on mathematical topics, uh, including uh, he wrote he wrote about and everything from Descartes, um, um, Foucault's pendulum. Uh, but he also became very very interested in science and uh, and believed that the way to, to excite people about both science and math subjects was by by telling a good story. Uh, and so he, all of his books were, his, his aim was to make them as accessible to a, to a public without uh, backgrounds in science and mathematics as possible. And I think for, for me, you know, as, as his daughter, my, my best memories are, and he didn't just talk science or read science or learn science, he really did it. So I remember from high school, you know, learning, trying to learn about gravity and wrapping my head around something or, you know, whether it was long division, whatever it was, and he would pull out every single object on the house and space them apart in such a way to demonstrate everything. And I think he had, he was one of the the rare types of personalities that maintained that childlike curiosity about everything. And I think some of my, my best memories are I, I got, um, I had the opportunity, so I was doing like an, an Italian summer course in, in Florence. And at the end of the course, I got to go and visit um, the European Nuclear Research at, um, CERN, where they had the Large Hadron Collider, and he was writing a book about the Large Hadron Collider, and I got to go with him and, you know, practice my Italian skills by talking to Italian physicists, and it was just, you know, wow. every, I think really, he threw himself into the research of every book and shared it with everyone around him. Yeah, that's great. Do you, um, I have a quick question about his uh, book where he's looking for the origin of zero. He, he mentions a, uh, I guess, a childhood friend that had helped teach him mathematics and inspire his curiosity. We, we, were either of you able to meet that childhood friend? I believe his name is Lotzi. 
he was actually of uh, an older generation. He was more um, the uh, contemporary of Amir's father. So um, unfortunately, no, <laughs> not anymore. Yeah, did, did he talk yeah. about him very much? And uh, anything interesting that Amir yeah. shared that maybe didn't make it into the book? Well, he did. He did talk. You know, Amir was his, had a very unusual um, childhood. His father was the the captain of the flagship, um, and so he and his family traveled on the ship quite a bit. So the 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 man that he talks about, Lotsey, was was one of the stewards who, when Amir was very young, took care of him. And because um, he had come out of, uh, uh, he had he had he had come to. Um, Israel, when when he himself was very young, he had to leave behind his mathematics background to be a steward on the ship. But he still had that 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 fascination with math, and I think Amir, I think that's that's really and truly why Amir was so um, so so fascinated with numbers. It, it, they were these were childhood stories from from Lotsey when he was when he was when he was with him as a five, six, seven year old child on board the ship. No. Amir had found uh, the artifact. I forget the name. It was like K one twenty three or something. You know, K one twenty seven. Yeah. One twenty seven. Right. I guess is that yeah. still the the earliest um, evidence of the number zero used by any culture? Well, that's a really good question. Um, um, probably. Um, they well, there, there's one. One. I, I should say that I think Amir made it very clear that um, the. The, the Mayan zero um, is also uh, is older, but it but Mayan culture was was more isolated, so that zero didn't travel into the into the the way we do um, mathematics. So the so there there it's the oldest zero the chem this, this zero that was found in Cambodia is the oldest one we absolutely have a date on. There's a there's a manuscript um, from India that that has been carbon dated and arguably is older, but there's some serious questions about whether the, the dating is correct or not. The zero from Cambodia, it's a stone and it has a, 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 a date. So we know exactly how old it, it is. So that is absolutely, um, we, we can't argue with, with, we can't argue with stone evidence. And I think what's interesting about the stone is it's really a ledger. It's kind of like a shopping list, right? And it, yeah. has, um, it has a clear date on it. And the, the Indian manuscript is called the Bakshali manuscript, and it's housed in Oxford. And they recently did, um, before, you know, there, there was no, they, they weren't able to do radiocarbon dating on it because it would mean taking a piece of this really precious ancient manuscript off and dating it. And they recently um, did radiocarbon dating. But the, the issue and why it's sort of, you know, contested is the fact that the, the piece that they did dating on didn't have any of the lettering on it. So there's a potential that the, um, you know, the portion of the manuscript that was dated was older than the portion that was written on it. So the date of writing might have been later. There's kind of a lot of debate around this. And I think what's, what's really interesting and, and to me what's so exciting about all of this is that even if it's not the oldest manuscript, it still is a really, really important contribution of Cambodia to the history of math and science, and it plays this really important role. And I think that was what you know my dad was so passionate about trying to to communicate with people because even Cambodians, this is not very well known. I mean, it, the, the fact that they, they didn't know the stone was previously thought to be either destroyed or, or lost during the the, um, the reign of the Khmer Rouge, and 
people really don't know the story. So his objective after finding it was kind of the more important one, which was communicating the story and making sure that Cambodians know that they have this incredible gift to the history of, of math and science. I feel that he had solved, you know, the mystery that he was interested in his whole life on where our numbers come from, or did he feel like this was just a part of the puzzle and he was happy, but not the answer? Yes, I think he, he thought this was an important part of the of the puzzle. Uh, and I think I think um, numbers present a, a huge mystery. And I think some of the, 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 the most profound and wonderful conversations I certainly um, remember with him are our arguments about um, do do numbers exist independently from 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 us or do numbers uh, determine the, the nature of the universe? What's the real importance of numbers? So I think it's one it's one small it's one small piece to a mirror of 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 of, uh, of, a, of a enormous mathematical puzzle. But I think also along the way, uh, I think as Miriam said, he 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 came to believe that the real importance of this particular story was was that he could use this as a way to encourage um, young Cambodians to to be excited about mathematics and and science and what he 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 met some quite quite incredible people in Cambodia who helped him on his search uh, and learned from them their stories about the the extent to which their 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 mathematical um, infrastructure educational infrastructure had been destroyed and it's still being rebuilt so through the through the, this Cambodian-based story, there's an opportunity to, to help them them rebuild a mathematics education. And I think that I don't think for him anything was ever you know a mystery solved. Um, I think it you know towards towards the end of, of his life, you know, we lost him too soon. But I still remember him trying to solve the the Millennium Prize problems and going through the, the Riemann hypothesis and trying to, you know, look into the origin of prime numbers. So I think there's a curiosity that is sort of constantly, nothing is ever fully solved and there's always more that you can, you can uncover and more that you can do and, and learn. Right. That's true. And I think that we, we, we have notebooks filled with his ideas for the, the next books. I think, you know, within literally within weeks of, of, of the time he died, he was, he was in Venice at the library because he wanted to. He he was he was on a search for for some information um, that would help him write a book about Euclid. Great, <laughs> amazing. Um, <laughs> another question: He had uh, at least one or two books on why science does not disprove God, and he <laughs> stayed a little bit away, I guess, from talking about faith. But was he a man of faith, or did that evolve in him? Like, what what was your read? That's an interesting question, <laughs> Miriam. Um, I guess well, first a, a little bit of a backstory to how the why science <laughs> doesn't disprove God. Um, we were at a conference. It's a fantastic conference in Mexico, in Mexico City, and it's called La Ciudad de las Ideas, and it's hosted by Dr. Andres Romer, who is a UNESCO uh, Google ambassador for free flow of knowledge, um, and one of our, our foundation's recent oh, um, our first awardee. Um, for his, you know, he just has these amazing tireless efforts to promote uh, knowledge and, and science and kind of um, truth. So we were at this conference and I, I was I was in my first year in university and I got to join my parents. My dad was speaking um, and one of the, the speakers who was there was, was Richard Dawkins. 
And I was, at the time, I was learning about the scientific method and how you can't say with certainty that something is not true unless you have evidence of it. It can't be, you know, true or disproven or proven without having evidence of it. And at the time, I think Dawkins was was um, in a debate. They had a debate about whether or not God can um, exist. And and so, you know, I, I to sort of brave my shyness, I <laughs> went up to um, to Professor Dawkins and I asked him. I didn't understand how you could say with certainty that God doesn't exist without having some sort of evidence. And he said, well, you know, in that case, you might as well believe in unicorns and walked away. And so I went to my dad and I told him what had happened. And so in order to, to kind of come to my defense, he came up with the, the topic of the book. And that was how the, the concept of the book came about. Yeah. And, but you I know, think... Hopefully Dawkins didn't, uh, didn't ruin you for life with his... his... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that I think that Amir, um, look, I think he was fundamentally a, a person of, of respect, uh, and I think what what he what he didn't like about the, the the position of I guess what he would call the new atheists, including Richard Dawkins, was was the lack of lack of respect for a person who might come to um, a, a position of faith. So I think that was really what what, the, what what his book was was designed to do. And I think it's 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 a point that's become more clear to me, I guess, in, since his passing. Because I remember at the time during this debate, um, there was uh, Rabbi Rabbi Wolpe, uh, David Wolpe, who was you know debating Dawkins, and what he was saying was that you can't you can't denigrate the, the value of religion. To you know, a, a grieving son or daughter, somebody who's grieving the loss of somebody, there really is an important role. And I think that this was something that that we're we're, we're Jewish, and after my my dad's passing, having the Jewish seven days of mourning, where people come together and you have an opportunity to you know, I I could talk about my dad all day. I think it's something that I, I really enjoy. And I think having that period where you have some sort of structure, something that you can do, is really valuable. And I think at the time. I didn't really understand just what was what can be powerful about religion, whether or not you believe in it, whether or not you're. And I think the the, the point of the book and the point of what he was trying to say was that you can be a scientist and and still have you know beliefs and still still have a sort of you know cultural religious. Um, but there, there's no reason that that believing in science and and you know evidence and facts has to um, has to has to negate religion. Excellent. And what is the uh, the foundation that uh, that you've created about? What's the goal of it? Ah, well, <laughs> um, when Amir wrote his book on finding zero, he had two two large objectives. The first one, he wanted to see the 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 stone K one twenty seven that contains the um, the oldest zero. He wanted to see it installed in a museum in Cambodian Phnom Penh. And the second objective he had was to, he wanted the largest um, conference on mathematics in the history of the world. He had a vision of 10,000, 20,000 uh, mathematicians descending on Phnom Penh so that both math mathematicians could learn about um, Cambodian culture and also could develop um, relationships with Cambodian mathematicians. So, so we decided our first objective with the, the foundation was to to do both, and we did. So we we didn't have 20,000 people in um, Phnom Penh, but we did have a really successful conference, and we did bring 
um, mathematicians from from India, from United States, from France, from um, from Canada to talk about zero within the context of of history of mathematics, and we did arrange to have the the the, the beautiful cell K127 installed in the the museum in Phnom Penh. And I think that's what I mean. It was it was really exciting because we had um, an inauguration at the museum where the stone is now beautifully displayed in the National Museum, um, the Cambodian National Museum in Phnom Penh. And it has an explanation of the history and the significance of this cell in English, French, and Khmer. Um, and so that was sort of one, one part. And that was, um, that was a bit of a separate event. And then the second event, we had this two-day conference where we had 10 speakers. And for almost all of our mathematician speakers, this was their first time in Cambodia. So that felt like, you know, this is something really special that I think um, it was exactly his goal was to both publicize this contribution to the history of math that Cambodia has to the rest of the world and also bring mathematicians to Cambodia to allow this international dialogue and continuing conversation. Um, and I think with, with the conference, first it was, it was really exciting because we had um, 500 first-year math students who attended. And so that was great to get to connect with Cambodia's next generation of, of mathematicians. Um, and, and then we, we had kind of two main goals, uh, and our goals are really related to sustainability. So the first was sustainability of, um, of, the, relations, of the relationships that we were building. So to be able to have longstanding partnerships between Cambodian mathematicians, French mathematicians, American mathematicians, and to, to, connect, um, to connect these international groups. And then the second goal was to have a, a zero waste and environmentally friendly, as close to zero waste um, and environmentally sustainable event as possible, with a point of showcasing local flavors. So we had, you know, a lot of our, the meals were served on banana leaves or with other sort of organic, um, organic products to contain the food. And so it was exciting to, to have those sort of two goals in mind that we set out um, and then to have something that really, we, we did have quite a few people, so it was, it was a big success. Yes. And, I, and the other thing that we, we've done, um, his book, Finding Zero, we wanted to make it available to Cambodians in um, Khmer. So with the, the, the absolutely wonderful help of a friend, um, Salong Uk, uh, he translated it into Khmer. It was a two-year project, and now we've managed to make it available to young um, Cambodians at very low cost. You know, it, it, it reminds me that... It, Sometimes um, a friend to somebody, you know, whether in childhood or the opposite experience, you know, like the experience that you know you guys had with Dawkins, it can shape a person, and that person can go on to either influence or not influence a lot of people. So it's it's really cool what you guys are doing with Cambodia because you're going to plant the seeds for a lot of other, you know, young mathematicians and existing ones to maybe go on and and help other people and do great things. It just for some reason that. Uh, it seemed, you know, that was like, it seems to be, you know, from an outside look that Amir's life was like really guided and shaped by, you know, what Lutzi did for him when he was very little and that allowed him mm -hmm. to do what he did. And then you guys are continuing that in a different way. So I think it's really cool what you're doing. It's really great. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly our, our goal. And we have, I, I think all of our future events as well and our, our future initiatives are based around this idea that we're hoping to help empower the next generation of, of scientists, mathematicians, 
um, and people who are going to make positive change in the world. And we have a recent partnership with um, uh, another nonprofit that's based in Mexico called the Social Jammers. And their goal is to use the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals to help um, as kind of a guiding, you know, the guiding light to um, to empower young young leaders and young entrepreneurs to make a difference in the world. So we're we're hoping to run an event with them um, sometime in the summer, based on the, the sustainable development goals and and how to use education, specifically access to education and sustainable education, and particularly math and science education as a tool for promoting social good um, and positive change in the world. And I think this is, you, you got exactly to the heart of, of what we're hoping to do. And I think we're, you know, we're a very small foundation with kind of limited means. But I think that one of the, the biggest things that we've, we've seen is that people are really willing to help. And I think that the, um, the objectives speak to a lot of people. And I, I think that, you know, my, my father touched a lot of people, both with his, with his research and his objectives. And so we're trying to continue that. Is is there enough? Uh, you said that he had um, notebooks and material. It may be a huge project, but um, is there enough material there that you're going to piece it together into another work that maybe touches upon his other interests, or is there not enough for you guys to do that? So there, yeah, it's. it's um, I think there is. There is this great story. We have really close family friends, um, and. Um, one of them is, is an artist. His name is Tom Barron. He's a fantastic artist. And I think it must have been around a, a lunch conversation where he had drawn a picture of my father as a cat with a mustache, you know, the emblematic mustache that my dad always had. Um, <laughs> and so the idea was that they thought, wouldn't this be a great, a great kids book, like a picture book for kids that would explain physics concepts. So Schrodinger's cat and how the cat is both, you know, dead and alive and, um, and all these really kind of quirky, eerie quantum physics concepts using um, the cat as, as, you know, the protagonist of the story. And then unfortunately, all, you know, it, it got to, Tom had these really beautiful paintings, but my dad never actually, they didn't get to do much with it. And so my mom and I thought, well, these, these beautiful watercolors. And we thought these, these, these paintings are too good not to use. So we're right now, we, we have a story that developed around um, my dad becoming Schrodinger's cat and it kind of roughly chronicles the Puss in Boots story. So, you know, he's um, quantum tunneling to get out of, of prison and, and so it use it, the, the point is to teach physics concepts. So on one page, there's sort of the quantum physics explanations and on the other page, there's the, the Puss in Boots Schrodinger's cat parable with it. That's very cool. That's very interesting. So, uh, do you feel like you guys were really, I don't know, I mean, I, it doesn't sound like you could maybe love math and science as much as he did, but do you feel like you were interested in it back then and more so now, or you always have been, or how did he shape it for you guys personally, that interest? Well, um, I guess where, where Miriam is now, Miriam's, uh, she's absolutely gone in a science direction. I think it's a, a bit of a different, um, different focus. Um, she's, She's a, currently a PhD student in, in London, finishing a finishing up her her PhD um, in policy uh, related to energy. Uh, that's pretty sciencey. I'm not sure that. It's true. I don't, yeah. I, I don't know if you want to talk about that. Growing up, I I always thought I can't 
I can't be a scientist because I don't have, my dad was, he would calculate massive numbers in his head and he loved, like he just had this affinity for numbers and doing everything in his head. And I just, I, you know, it didn't come as naturally to me. So I thought, okay, I can't, I can't be a scientist because I don't have that. And I always thought I had to choose between, you know, humanities. And I thought I wanted to study language because at the time, you know, I, I love languages. My, my, my father did too. He spoke seven or eight languages um, fluently. And I think that was, a direct impact of having grown up on the ship where his, his father with no formal education spoke 13 languages very well and would speak to everybody on the ship in a language. Um, and so for me, you know, the stories of my, of my grandfather and my dad's stories of growing up on the ship really influenced me. And so I, I kind of grew up with this idea of languages being a great communicator and a way to understand cultures. Um, and I think it's funny because... I, it, it took me a while to realize that you don't have to choose between love of humanities and writing and, and arts and language and communication and love of science. And I think environment is almost like a, a, a you, know, you, you think it would be obvious as a field that really is at this nexus of the two. Um, and it, I think it took me a couple of years. It wasn't, I didn't get into my, my sort of field until my fourth year of, um, of university. And I had some, I, I was blessed with having some really good mentors who showed me that you don't have to, you know, love numbers over my earliest memories are my dad would read math formulas, you know, before going to sleep. It was that much like you really, really, you know, loved numbers, but at the same time was was an author and wrote very well and communicated really well. And I think that that's something that I'm I'm looking into now. I did science in undergrad, environmental science, and now I'm at my PhD is focusing on um, energy and environmental law and policy that's heavily guided by the science. So I'm trying to use my sort of science background. And I think that that, although I didn't go into math and probably this is great disappointment, um, I'm, I'm starting to get a little bit more of an understanding of, of his world, his field, and kind of, you know, academics and why he was constantly so excited by every new project because I, I feel like I have a little bit of that and it's, you know not a day goes by that I don't feel like I'm inspired by um, by his work and what the the gifts that he gave me and the, and the fact that um, anyone can be a scientist you know any, anyone who's curious about the world is a scientist and it's just kind of following that curiosity and trying to understand the way things the way things are and the way things work well it's really cool that he he, um, he gave you that gift and that appreciation that's great you, you know one thing occurred to me do you think um you know how some people have what's called synesthesia, where numbers have certain shapes or flavors, or they take on a different representation in someone's mind? I mean, do you think that Amir had any of that? Did he ever talk about numbers as having characteristics that were kind of odd or that, that affected his senses? Hmm. It's a really, it's, it's a really okay. interesting question. I think some things he had a really, really good memory for numbers. And I think he remembered numbers the way, you know, not like most. Abnormally. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's what I, mean. I, I think that's, that, yeah, no, I, I think that that, I think Marion's right. I think in that, in that sense, I'm not sure that he, he, um, he, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I don't think he saw numbers as blue or pink or whatever, but I think he, if he, he had a, he had a scary memory for numbers. He could remember a, a, a telephone number he had heard once <laughs> 20 years ago and it would, it would, he could still, he could still spit it out. That's that. So I think, and, and I think he thought numbers had, had an incredible 
beauty that, um, and he viewed numbers um, as an art, artistic creation. And I think the difference is that in his case, it was more of a conscious ability to recall numbers or a conscious decision, because I think he thought that numbers were so beautiful, so they really stood out to him, and it was more of a conscious thing that he would try to, you know, recall them. And I, he met um, uh, Daniel Tammet, who I think is, um, it was actually at the same conference in Mexico, um, La Ciudad de las Ideas, where Daniel Tammet is, you know, this amazing synesthetic who recited however many hundreds of thousands of digits of pi, um, wow. and... Yeah, and I guess we had we had breakfast with him one of one of the days during this, this yeah. conference. Um, and in one of his one of Tammet's books, he describes meeting. Um, you know, this this he says something like, I, "I met a mathematician who was telling me in very very excited manner about his plan to try to track down the oldest recorded zero in Cambodia." And, you know, I hope his I had a great conversation with him. <laughs> his wife and his, you know, teenage daughter at the time. And I hope that his, um, his mission was a success. I think it was really exciting to read that a couple of years later and know that it was, it was definitely a success and he did track down the zero stone. That's awesome. That's really awesome. Did, um, did Amir have any friends in the math world or science world that were even amazing to him where he just, I mean, he was like blown away by how they were. Ah, um, I think that one of the Mir's books, um, when he was well, he, he he was really interested in physics. So he wrote he wrote a book about uh, the the Large Hadron Collider at CERN and about the the, the developments there. And in the and in researching uh, that book, he met. I think he was really he was he was blown away by by having interviewed something like 12 Nobel Prize winning physicists. Uh, I think that he just, I, I think, was eternally in awe of, uh, of their accomplishments. Um, he was, a, he was a, a very good friend of um, Jerry Friedman, who received the, the, who was an experimentalist and received the Nobel. Um, I think he was a tremendous influence on, on, on Amir and, and how to ask how to ask the right questions. I think that, I think the, 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 the world of physics just, just blew him away. Well, very cool. So what's the best way for, for listeners who are curious about Amir, which book you said he wrote 20 some odd books, any recommendations on one or two that they should start with that you think will be very impactful depending on their interest? Well, I think the Finding Zero was his, um, his final book. And it's, it's in many ways it's, it's, it's a good place to start because, first of all, it's accessible. It's uh, and it's it's his most personal story. He really he really wrote about himself and his own his own path um, to to interest in numbers. Um, I think I think the um, present of the creation is the story of Stern. I think that's also quite a, quite an interesting book um, that explains incredibly complicated uh, physics. Miriam, what books do you yeah, like? I think, um, you know, just to give sort of a, a picture of Finding Zero, there was a, um, a Brazilian cartoonist made a, a cartoon of Finding Zero featuring my dad is Indiana Jones. So it really is this kind of adventure story. And I think that what, what, what I love so much about it is that it kind of, it's not a math or science book. It kind of transcends all of that because it's, 
it's about archaeology, it's about history, and it really is kind of a personal and, um, you know, very accessible adventure story. And, yeah, I guess present creation is like that as well. Yeah. Um, I think for Maslow's theorem was one for of For theorem was, uh, was really his, his first popular uh, science book. That's, I think it's, I think it still stands alone very nicely. I think it's, it's, it's quite a beautiful uh, description of, of, of how solving the, solving an incredibly complex equation is not something one person just does. It really explains how math is done. And I think that's, that's quite, quite remarkable. Okay. And and, um, for people that are interested in the foundation, what, uh, is there an event coming? I mean, you know, right now it may be delayed a bit, but uh, yes. are there events or opportunities uh, foundation-wise that, uh, you know, for listeners to get involved in? Yeah, I think we're, um, yeah, our, our upcoming event was supposed to be held in late summer in Boston. Um, it was going to be housed at Harvard, and this is about uh, the Sustainable Development Goals in partnership with the Social Jammers. And I think we're we're hoping to go ahead with the event, assuming that you know that things are are better by then. Um, but we don't know; it's very much up in the air. And I guess that you know the, the the most important part is that we're always looking for partnerships, and we're we're looking to to contribute to um, to other math and science and environmental projects. And I think the the foundation is very much in the process of you know evolution, kind of taking on. We, we don't yet know what our aside from that um, what our next big Events are going to be, we're hoping to host another one in Cambodia, a math workshop, but um, we're also looking to expand to, to other countries and kind of grow our, um, our our focus and our partnership. Well, very good. Well, Miriam and Deborah, thanks so much for coming and sharing these stories, and, and I really appreciate it very much. Um, thank you so much for having us. This was great. It was really a pleasure. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.